Welcome back, Paranormies, to another episode of Paranormal Guys. I'm Zane. And I'm Kyle. And we're back. Back for yet another episode of horror, thrills, chills, etc. Punchline, catchphrase, etc., etc., etc. Let's jump into this, Kyle. Mike, I'm going to put a mystery in front of you guys. And I just like genuinely want to see what you guys come up with, okay? Okay. You're in the mountains. The year is 1959. It is 25 degrees below zero. And I want you to picture the crime scene. So we have three people dead in one group underneath a tree. Two of those people are clinging to each other and frozen in that position. We have one person dead trying to claw their way back up a hill to a tent. I'll get into the tent in a second. We have another group of people, I think three of them, if I remember correctly, who are dead in a separate area, buried in six feet of snow when they're found. Most of them, with the exception of two, died of hypothermia, which makes sense given the fact that these people have very, for the area they're in, very little clothing on. They're out in the middle of the mountains, and yet in the middle of the night, they're wearing almost nothing. Their clothes are shredded, the ones that they are wearing, and they're out in the snow, which doesn't make any sense. Now, I said most of them died of hypothermia. Two of them died from blunt force trauma to the head, the exact phrase that's used in the um, in the report is... So two of them died of blunt force trauma from an unknown force, and it was to the head. Okay, so two groups. Both of them are dead. Everybody's dead except for the one who was crawling towards the tent. She's now dead as well, but there's two groups essentially. The tent the one, still has The one that was climbing the, toward the tent, how did she die? Was that hypothermia or was that a hypothermia, blunt force? Hypothermia okay. uh, on the way back towards the tent. Now, the tent, okay. almost all of their equipment is still in the tent. Untouched, unmoved. However, the things that make the tent an interesting position... There are three knife slashes through the tent. All of them from the inside. And they have all fled the tent, apparently in the middle of the night, with limited equipment on. Two of them grabbed flashlights. One of them dropped the flashlight on the way out. That flashlight was found still in the on position, buried in the snow next to the tent when the crime scene investigators arrived. Nothing has been taken. Two of them died from blood force trauma. Everybody else died of hypothermia. They're not wearing as much, nearly the clothing they should. All of them, by the way, are experienced mountaineers. They're considered class two mountaineers by the Soviet Union, meaning that with one more class grade up, which is what they're going to get when they complete this trek, they can become professional mountain guides, which in the Soviet Union is a big deal because most of the time your career path leads you to serving the people. So they clearly think that these people are impressive enough that they are serving the populace by teaching people mountaineering, which is incredible in the Soviet Union. And yet all of them are dead, seemingly through their own stupidity of hypothermia, with the exception of the two that died of blunt force trauma prior to dying of hypothermia, because they would have either way, but they died of blunt force trauma before they could be killed that way. What happened? Tell me, guys. Um, well, the one, let's see, the two that were naked, you said were blunt force trauma. Or nearly naked. Nobody, nobody was naked. Um, they were wearing limited clothing. They had additional clothing, more <laughs> really layers than they should naked. have been wearing. 
Neat. Uh, more layers <laughs> that they should have been wearing, uh, but they were back in the tent as if they had to flee in a hurry. Okay, because I know that when you get hypothermia and you start freezing to death, a lot of people, most victims will take off their clothing because they start getting hot or they start feeling hot. Because they, they'll feel hot and they'll disrobe. That does happen. Yeah. All yeah. of these people were found. The A, the temperature, I don't know if I mentioned this, is negative 25. Right. You did so mention that. Odds are decent that it would have been such a rapid onset that they wouldn't have had that opportunity. Um, they were all found with their clothing shredded, but it was not shredded as if by fingernails. Now, I don't know if I mentioned this I before. I know what it was. What was it, Kyle? Or, wow, sorry, Michael, whoever you are. <laughs> <laughs> they awoke and were startled in the middle of the night by Sasquatch in their tent and ran out. Um, excuse me, Sasquatch Believe wouldn't it be or there. Not. It's too cold. It's going to be the Yeti. Okay. Believe it or oh, not, okay. that theory was put forward and debunked. Yes, rapidly. I know. Yeah. Um, <laughs> the abominable snowman as well. well. Why can't they call me the adorable snow? Well, I guess it's in Russia. Why can they not call me adorable snowman <laughs> or perhaps vodka snowman? Um, yes, what happened though? The snowman. <laughs> what, I am the Yeti. I serve Mother Russia. Um, all right. <laughs> That's a great clip that I'm glad is now floating around in the ether. Um, so what happened, Kyle? Tell me what happened. Like, go from the top. They're in their tent. What makes them leave? Well, I mean, there's been a, I know this story and I know there's been a lot of theories. There have been theories of aliens. There's been theories of um, one of them going insane and attacking the others. And that's why they're all fleeing from the tent. Um, But I don't know. That's what's so interesting is there's so many theories and it's still unsolved. Well, that may or may or not be true. It? Zane I, has solved it for us in the last 24 hours have run eight miles worked for like a good 16 of those hours and read a 300 page book. And that 300 page book is called dead mountain. And it's the store, the most recent book about the Dietlov pass. I highly suggest it to our readers. And a lot of the research I've done, cause I knew about the Dietlov pass prior to this was very similar to Kyle's. A lot of conspiracy theories, aliens, uh, the Yeti, things like that, but they're all really inconclusive. What led me to the book was it was done in a scientific fashion. And as I did my normal research, a lot of the resources I was pulling from felt way too conspiratorial. So I decided to read this and it was outstanding. But I want to go through the major theories to begin with before I tell you anything else. So to start off with just very brief backstory, like I said, they're a group of, of very talented mountaineers. Um, there, you know, I, I don't want to get into names other than I or Igor Dietlov, who was the leader of the group. Um, if you would like more backstory, read the book. Like I say, it's outstanding. And you really do get to know the people that were involved and you learn a lot more about them. It's it might be eye opening to anybody who just sees Russia as the Iron Curtain or Curtain rather. Um, it's it's a really, really interesting story. But either way, on the I see way Russia as a giant like pit kind of like. The Kyle, we're going to get hacked in so fast. Parks and recreation. <laughs> Russian hackers will take our site down so quick. Anyway, they, they, they beat the election. So, uh, they no, it's because it's because in Parks and Recreation, Leslie makes a reference. She's like, what is this? Russia? Oh, we Nikolai, could play. Why don't Nikolai. you go down to the store? <laughs> We can pay, play ring around the diaper and we can throw sand. <laughs> that actually is probably one of the best comedic timings of Leslie note, but going back yeah. to it. So to, to set the, the scene here just a bit, there's a lot that goes into the backstory here, but these, these 
mountaineers per se. They were actually really, really solid people. They were what you might call like kind of the hippie generation of Russia, but they were intelligent and they were educated. They were all together at college together. Wow. They were all at college together and they spent time as schoolmates. Some of them were roommates. They were good friends. There's a picture of them when they're all chilling in a dorm room together. And it looks very American with the exception of the Russia green walls. Um, there was also an edict on music at that point that was anything except for Soviet bloc music, but there was like an underground kind of counterculture movement in music where they would write their own songs. Now, if you got busted playing them, you could go to jail and that wasn't great, but they, they were basically kind of their own counterculture while still serving the Soviet Union, which I think is cool. It's kind of this whole freedom of speech meets their devotion to communism. So when the group... When the group left on the trip, they actually ended up bringing one person who wasn't in like the OG group and his name was Sasha. He went by Sasha, which is a pretty common nickname in Russia. And mm -hmm. when they described this guy, I couldn't get it out of my head that he was Post Malone. Like he sounds like Post Malone. <laughs> he, he like he has this like kind of jovial behavior. He's a big guy. He fought in the war. He has tattoos, which at that point meant you fought in the war. Basically, that was like the only real indicator. He, he was in World War Two. So he was older. Mm -hmm. um, but this is but 1959. What war did Post Malone fight in? Uh, the war of my soul. <laughs> he fought in the war for the tears out of my eyes. I'm just trying to won. see the the only connection they have so far is tattoos. Well, it's more it's more his personality, and you'll you'll see that as it goes on. So essentially, okay. he has this kind of jovial personality, the same way that Posty does. But the reason that he reminded me of him is a the tattoos were kind of funny to me. But for some reason, I was picturing just this big puffy dude. And it talks about how he had a guitar that he would bring with him as a little guitar is actually, I think, a mandolin. But either way, he, he brought it along and he played music with them and they would play and sing songs together as a group. And I know that it's a limited connection, but for some reason it just attached itself. And for the rest of the time I read the book, he was just kind of this post Malone figure. He was a good mountaineer. Okay. He had a lot of experience, but like that All was right. so later on in the story, it was kind of disheartening when he died. But either way, um, they, they got on a train together, they met with Sasha, and they kind of travel over to Dietlov. And on the way, they actually went through a school and, like, taught all these school children about mountaineering. They, like, set up a tent for them, and all the kids wanted to go on adventures with them. And, like, they begged one of the group members, Zena, who was a really intelligent woman, um, to stay with them and be the, the leader of the Young Pioneers, which is the Russian equivalent of the Boy Scouts. And okay. it was really cool just to see them humanize so much mountaineering and, like show these kids their, their passion. And they, when they left, um, and this is kind of, this is really sad after they departed that town and, and had moved on. And once they had died, the school children wrote letters to the sole surviving member of the group, um, asking why Zena never came back. And he said, I never had the heart to write them back. So it's, Aww. it's actually really sad, but at the same time, really cool that like they took the time to do that. They weren't just out adventuring, being reckless. they, they were basically doing their job. So right. they travel out and as any good adventure begins, they have to go find a yurt because they're basic white girls and they need to post on Instagram. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> they, um, <laughs> oh my Here's gosh, 45 pictures and life. I'm only going to post half of one. Living my best life. We'll send nudes <laughs> if you follow. Um, anyway, <laughs> so they end up out in the mountains. Now I don't want to get this wrong. So I'm going to pull up the name exactly. So, there's a bunch of indigenous, not a bunch, several indigenous tribes that live out in the northern Siberian wastes. Um, and they've lived there for generations. They have their own language. Um, and it's actually pretty cool. They're called the Mansi. And the Mansi took them in. And it's like 
very similar to Arabic to Arab or I should say like Saudi Arabian culture um, in that, like if you had a traveler passing through, you took care of them. Uh, you made sure that they were taken well taken care of. So they passed through the Monsi's culture and the Monsi actually are responsible for getting them through that area, helping them stockpile a little bit of food and getting them on their way to Dietlov essentially. Now the Monsi control the land that the Dietlov passes on. So okay. There's a theory out there that the Monsi were responsible for the death of these hikers because hmm. they had disturbed a sacred place. The only problem with that theory is that the mountain they were on is not a sacred place. It was I was going to say, is it actually land. a sacred place or is it just a theory? It was a it was a scapegoat, in my opinion. It was something that somebody could cling to long enough to be disproven. But essentially, it was right. initially considered a viable angle, but really, really quickly discarded because A, the Monsi had helped them, and B, the mountain's name in, in the Monsi dialect is Holatachi, which means dead mountain. Now, that sounds eerie to begin with, right? This mountain where, you know, a bunch mm-hmm. of hikers died is called Dead Mountain. But the reality of it is it's called Dead Mountain because nothing grows on it. There's a bunch of books out there written called The Mountain of Death and stuff like that. And I'm just like, you idiots, it's called The Dead Mountain. It's not called The Mountain of Death. <laughs> two different things, two different connotations. Your title is wrong, therefore your book is wrong. So, anyway, going yeah, off on a tangent, the, but mean, it's important it, because... Mountains and forests and things are named things like that for a reason. I mean, look at Suicide Forest in Japan. Yeah, but that one's not named the Suicide Forest. Yes, it is. It's nicknamed the Suicide Forest, kind of like the middle (laughs) lane is nicknamed the Suicide Lane. (laughs) Okay. Initially, there was some speculation the Monsi had done it, but it didn't make any sense. The Monsi were friendly to travelers. It was not a sacred mountain. And it had at face value, you know, dead mountain, no resources, right. no spiritual examinations, nothing like nothing to go on there. Now, the other and it's thought, dead mountain, not death mountain. It's called dead mountain, not the okay. mountain of death, not death mountain, dead mountain, just dead, dead mountain. Barren, nothing. So there. because it's dead, it, you can't grow anything there. Yeah, it's, it's it's essentially resourceless. I'm sure that if you like sunk a well there, George Bush would be grateful. But, you know, something like that. Either way. Um, <laughs> now, do you know if it's because there was too much salt on there? Like, is it super salty and things like that? Because I know nothing will grow out in the salt flats because of the same thing. Well, it's negative 25 degrees, so it has to be pretty hardy to grow anything to begin with. But additionally, we'll get into that. There's there's a reason oh, for it. OK. Now, I was going to say, because my parents, where they live, they have plants that go that will survive negative 40. Yeah, there's perennial plants. But um, yeah, the other theory that was put forward, one of the one of the, the hikers actually had their eyes popped out of their head from overpressure when they found them. So there was a theory put forward that there was an avalanche, which would make sense. We have the blunt force trauma from somebody being tumbled around in an avalanche. Everybody else froze to death. But what doesn't make sense is even though it took them a while to find the hikers, let me rotate, even though it took them a while to find the hikers, there was no crusted snow over the top of them, which forms like concrete after an avalanche. Not to mention that the tent was still there and visible. That was how they found them. So the avalanche theory was pretty quickly debunked. Um, And actually, I want to read this part. This is from that book from Dead Mountain. I contacted Bruce Temper, one of the foremost experts on avalanches in the United States. He is the director of the Forest Service and Utah Avalanche Center and an authority of staying alive in avalanche terrain. 
So he actually, or an author rather, of Staying Alive in Avalanche Terrain, which is like one of the foremost books about actual avalanche net ma- or navigation and management. Um, after reviewing the data, he concluded it is highly unlikely that an avalanche hit the hiker's tent or the surrounding area. Given all the above, it has been essentially disproven. So the avalanche theory goes out the window. Now, there's this odd theory. I found this one super bizarre. High winds. Okay, Kyle, explain to me how high winds killed all of them. Just go. Oh, you want me to, like, off yeah, the top me, of my give head? Give me the best bullshit that you can about how high winds <laughs> killed eight people in a tent. I'm imagining, like, a cartoon cloud just coming through and blowing, like, whoo, as hard as it can until they died. Like, I, I don't get that one. That one, I'm just like, what? <laughs> so, initially, yeah, the like, it would have to be hurricane-powerful winds to really cause blunt force trauma. Like, it would have to throw them yeah. across the field. Well, so that was the thing. One of them was like one of the theories was high winds. It blew them off the mountain. And it's like, okay, real quick. Tent's still there. Second point for you. So the initial thought was, yeah, the tent's still there because someone went out to take a leak and got blown away and everybody else ran out to help them. I don't care who you are. I don't care what kind of mountaineer you are. You put your boots on. Yeah. None of them were wearing shoes. So it's like they didn't just evac the tent. All right. Someone was taking a piss and they got blown away. All eight of us at the same time without any light sources should go run out in the dark and try to find them. Yeah, good idea. Let's do that, boss. And not wear any clothes or shoes. Yeah, good idea. So I don't really know why that theory was ever fielded other than bad science. But essentially they were like, yeah, high winds. High winds blew them away. Blew them all off the mountain. And was it also there doesn't any ex- drugs found in their system? Like, did they do an autopsy or anything? Great question. Yes, they did. They actually did a really, really solid forensic job. It's one of the best ones I've seen from the 50s. No uh-huh. alcohol, no drugs. Part of the trip was that, A, they were all pretty straight edge kids. None of them really did alcohol. It wasn't their thing. Um, and it's also the Soviet. says did alcohol like it's a drug. Do you like, <laughs> do you think smoking drugs is cool, Kevin? Do you think doing alcohol is cool? <laughs> doing alcohol oh it's funny but um so anyway they they actually only had one little thing of alcohol with them it was medicinal alcohol and Mm. fun fact for you it was actually drunk by the first rescuing party on the scene um they're like this um, is terrible i gotta drink that (laughs) (laughs) give me some of that pure grain shit but anyway um (laughs) they so they did have alcohol with them but none of them were intoxicated and there was no drug use by the group they actually had made a ban that or a ban they had made a plan to not have cigarettes with them too one of them did have cigarettes with them they found that out afterward but that theory was debunked next theory this one's a little darker so i told you before that there was a survivor right That survivor only survived because he left before all of this went down. This guy's name was Yuri Yudin, Y-U-D-I-N. He's the 10th member of the group, and he turned back because he he was rheumatic. He had a severe medical disability that made him have to turn around, essentially. Um, It's essentially having arthritis. It's it's very similar to arthritis. It made it hard to walk. And so he made the decision that he was going to turn Mm -hmm. around and walk back. And they were all cool with that. There was no, no issue with it. He was like, hey, guys. I will be I will drag you down if I if I remain here. So shortly after they left the camp of the of the Muncie, he was like, I'm going back. And they were like, cool, dude, we'll see you when you get back uh, or when we get back. Have a good trip. Thank you for coming with us. It was all amicable. But what makes this really interesting is that he believes in this theory. Once again, he was there like he, he, he almost succumbed to this whole situation. The theory is that of armed men. So. I'm not going to read you part of this because it would ruin it, but essentially 
Um, the theory is that a group of armed men, either Soviet military or escaped prisoners from a nearby gulag, led the hikers to their deaths and essentially forced them to stage their own deaths. Um, they also the, the reason that that theory is backed up is this on arrival to the campsite. They, of course, documented everything there and they used Yuri to say, OK, whose is this? Whose is this? And they painstakingly had him go through every article and define whose it was, which makes perfect sense from a forensic standpoint. Because yeah, but it's sad. Yeah, it, it had to be really hard for him. But and he talks about it in the interview. And but he did it because he loved his friends and it was his way of honoring them. You know what I mean? It was his way of saying, I want to help figure out what happened here. So there were things that he says were missing. Um, and interestingly enough, one of the women had their tongue cut out. Um, hmm. And so the theory was that it was a sign of aggression. Uh, however, none of the women were sexually assaulted. Nobody had any other bruising other than the two blunt force traumas. If the men were armed, how did they stage hypothermia? Did they stand over the top of them and wait for them to freeze to death? And why were their footprints not found? And the stuff that was supposedly missing was actually not. It was cataloged by people that were on the scene. It was there. Mm -hmm. it, they found it. Okay. Not to mention that they're, one of the big standpoints they have is they had chocolate with them, which was a luxury. And the chocolate bars and the wrappers were missing when, when the catalog happened. The reason for that is really simple. Two of the rescuers ate them. Yeah, I could. That, I can understand that. Like 100 percent. So as much as you want it to be that as much as it, it's it adds some creep vector, you know, some creep value to it. No. Not at all. It's it's, yeah, in, it's mean, implausible. It's simple enough. But yeah. we still have these eight dead hikers. I've told you all the reasons they're not dead, but why? You know, nine dead hikers, actually. But why? Why are they? You know, what happened? So. Next theory is a rocket test or a weapons test. So there's a bunch, a bunch of YouTube videos that say, what happened at Dietlov Pass? Find out today on our top five creepiest. <laughs> <laughs> and, and it makes me want to puke because it's a monetizing something awful where people are still around that happened. And I get that the story needs to be told, but right. don't do that bullshit because what you're telling right. is literally a lie. So, there was another group of hikers nearby um, that saw what they call, I, I want to say, yeah, the orbs. They called them the orbs. And <clears throat> they were orange balls of light that appeared in the sky by night um, and would just streak off in different directions. Those orange balls of light were Soviet missile tests. They were not oh, okay. orbs. They were not mystical powers. They weren't anything like that. But the theory is that some kind of radioactive weapon or other kind of weapon misfired or was intentionally targeted on the hikers. And that is what caused them to flee the tent. Maybe a low-hanging gas that traveled through the area, uh, intense radiation, a missile strike nearby enough to cause some kind of nasty, you know, something or other to occur. Now, I will say this. One of them was found with 30 times the normal dosage of radiation on all of his clothing. And that was Sasha, the one who reminds me of Post Malone. So, I mean, yes, that sounds plausible, but is there an explosion site nearby where and then maybe the winds came through and there was, there was a downdraft of whatever it was carrying? There's no impact crater there, but you just hit the nail right on the head. So I, I want to just read this because it makes the most sense. Uh, Lev Ivanov, who was one of the head um, investigators, wrote a letter to a newspaper after all of this was declassified, supposedly. And he said that he... 
highly believed that, quote, someone wanted to intimidate people or show off power. And so they did so by killing three hikers. Problem is that there was a lot more than three. Um, yeah. I know all the details of this event and can say that the only one, that only those who were inside the orbs, claiming the orbs were like a ship or a weapon, know more than me. Whether there was people inside them at any time, it is yet unclear. That's the one of the head investigators saying that. He actually ends up redacting that statement later on. And the purported light orbs were more, I don't know, they were seen mid-month. They weren't even seen around the same time as the actual tragedy. Which is why it's kind of hilarious to me that they did that. It was definitely yeah. just missile tests from the Baikonur station, which was near enough to be seen. And then it gets well, even better. So I remember how I told you... Go ahead. Well, I was going to say, I think that one reason why they might say, oh, they were orbs is because maybe they had poor vision and things that are far away when you have poor vision is just a circle of light. Well, not to mention and that just seeing night blurring move, would totally no happen. Sense. You have a big yeah. bright light that appears up like, yeah, and, and it wasn't even at the same time. So that was essentially like ruled out. And yeah. not to mention the fact that a lot of you know, the light could be a lot of other things, but the the glow is not what killed them not to mention right there's a picture that everybody points to so there's a very eerie quality to these pictures if you look at them from the perspective of now but from then they're really fun so if you they i found all the pictures from the uh the diet love trip or the diet love trip rather that uh -huh. were taken along the way and they look like great friends having a good time and i actually really like the pictures there's one at the very end of the roll it was the last picture ever taken black background bright white light it's an overexposure shot from inside the iris. That's what it is. It's not them taking oh. the picture of whatever killed them. You can see eight freaking petals in the shot. It's the inside of the iris being overexposed by because someone set it off in their backpack or pulled it out. But it doesn't oh. have definitive evidence any more than me taking a blurry cell phone shot of my murderer that happens to be a picture of a doorknob shows anything like, you know, it's it's neither here nor there now. I told you one of them had radiation on him, though. Doesn't that prove that there was something being tested? Yeah, I think it does. Well, I think something was being tested, and that's why I'm saying maybe there were winds and there was a draft that. But so I, I feel close. like it would be all over everyone, not just him. You're close. So essentially, there's an island that we should definitely talk about called Novoye Zimlia, which is where a lot of the nuclear tests that Russia did were performed. Matter of fact, Tsar Bomba, their largest nuclear bomb, was tested off the coast of Novaya Zimlia. So there's a scientist, Dr. Christopher Strauss. Um, he was an associate professor of radiology at the University of Chicago. And the author submitted the findings that they had from the medical tests to him. These are his exact words. Upon first glance, I noted that by today's scientific understanding of radiation levels, the beta particle testing and decays cited in the criminal case for the hiker's clothing were nowhere near an abnormal range. They would have had to have been at least 50 to 100 times the level detected to reach dangerous or alarmingly abnormal levels of radiation. The slight positive result in the hiker's clothing could easily be ex explained by environmental contaminants, for example, radiation from nuclear tests that are conducted in the winter, in that winter, on the islands of Novaya Zemlya. So, it's just, it's not plausible. Now, this is everyone's favorite thing, and it's why we exist. The response, it's classified. So we can't tell you, right? Ugh, I hate that response. There's a big Sorry. problem with that. Here's a I'm going to respond to that with no response by saying it's classified. <laughs> There's a problem with that, though. 
Per Soviet law, criminal case files are stored in the prosecutor's office for 25 years, and then they can legally destroy them. They didn't. They released the case files. If they had something to hide, oh my gosh. Why, why wouldn't they destroy them? They've destroyed a lot of other stuff. I'm just saying, the Soviet Union ain't exactly great at keeping records that they don't want people seeing. Hashtag gulags. Right. So, like, uh, what, if there was a big conspiracy, what would happen? Like, they would destroy the files. So, that's ruled out as well. So what's left? I have we've we've debunked almost every single other option. Now, space aliens, I'm not even going to dignify that. Sorry, <laughs> that, that's just not going to happen here. Yeah, that is rude. There, There's a possibility it could be aliens, Zane. OK, you can't rule that we out. We are sentient race from space. What should we do first? <laughs> Go kill eight randos in a tent. Yes, yes. OK, fine. I get your understanding. Thank you. So. Anyway, they, they basically just, yeah, no, aliens didn't kill them. Now. No, I didn't think it was aliens either. Now, we still have these nine dead hikers. My, I, this blew my mind. Like, I learned about science I didn't know about. <laughs> and I'm not saying I know a lot about science. I'm saying I watch way too much Curiosity Stream, who is not a sponsor. Just to be clear, we're waiting on you, Curiosity Stream. Make our day. Anyway, so. There is something that I, once again, have never heard of. It's called infrasonic sound. Have you heard of it before? Infrasonic sound? Yep. I-N-F-R-A-S-O-N-I-C. It sounds like something they would do, they would use in the ocean. You would think so. It sounds similar to sonar, which it's not. Yeah. Infrasonic sound is something I had no idea existed. It is a, it's a weaponizable form of sound and it occurs naturally. The earth creates it. Have you ever heard of the hum before? Is that the one that's in the ocean? There's one, but there's two more importantly that are on land. And this is real spooky stuff because it's like horror film stuff or like it's like the stuff of myth. It sounds like something that's out of like a like a spooky, like a creepypasta, but it's real. So get this, guys. This is super freaking spooky. Um I'm just going to read the story for you. A pioneer in biological effects of infrasound was a Russian-born French scientist named Vladimir Gavro, who discovered its impact on the body entirely by accident. During the 1960s, Gavro and his laboratory assistants started experiencing inexplicable nausea, pain in the eardrums, and shaking lab equipment, all with apparently no cause. When all the chemical and airborne sources were ruled out, Gavro eventually concluded that inaudible, low-frequency sound waves were being generated by the motor of a large fan and a duct system in the building where his lab was located. What initially started out as a subconscious irritation soon became a scientific pursuit for Gavro, but it was difficult for one to pursue, as no traditional microphone could pick up the frequencies and exposing himself and his assistance to the infrasound resulted in severe illness, sometimes lasting for days. So it makes you sick. It makes you feel physically sick, and it's just a sound that's produced. But it gets spookier. I learned that man-made sources of infrasound were numerous, cooling and ventilation systems and wind farms being typical culprits. But these low-frequency waves also occurred in nature as, as byproducts of earthquakes, landslides, meteors, storms, and tornadoes. So it's basically, at this point, just something that makes you ill, but it gets a lot creepier. I later learned that this naturally occurring infrasound could be devastating to humans causing nausea, severe illness, psychological disturbances, and even suicide. Symptoms mm. are not like, or not unlike those theoretically produced by an infrasonic 
weapon. Now, can this sound also leave behind traces of um, whatever was found on radiation. that guy's radiation that was found on that guy's jacket? It's non-radioactive. It's just a sound. It's a frequency, though, that can cause psychological paranoia and lead to suicide. It's just a sound. And it's been colloquially referred to as the hum. And there are two places where it has been notably written that it exists. And one of them is in Mexico and the other one is near Detroit. NOAA. So um, I can't remember what the what it stands for. Oh, my goodness. I have it written down. Sorry, guys. The, the weather service. Yeah, the weather service. The NOAA, the official U.S. weather service has recognized it. And there are scientists paid by the U.S. government to study it. It's it's a real phenomenon. It's not just something a French scientist came up with at some point. And the British weaponized it. They tested it on their people. They put an infrasonic reader or infrasonic emitter in a movie theater and just waited to see what would happen. And everybody left sick or left early. And it's a real like it, it's super spooky because it's been weaponized multiple times. The Russians were testing it for weapons capability in the 1950s. The Americans have tested it for weapons capability. The Israelis have used it. There's a video of a truck with a big solar, what looks like a big like uh, satellite dish on the top of it being pointed at a crowd of rioters and they all disperse. And it's an infrasonic emitter. It's the spookiest thing that I didn't know existed. It's something else to keep you up at night. So essentially, they're in the places where it exists naturally, people's quality of life goes down immensely until sometimes they're forced to move. Some have committed suicide and it causes psychological disturbances. So now you're wondering, okay, Zane, why are you bringing up infrasonic sound? I know it's going to somehow involve the Dietloff Pass. What happened? So we're now back at the Dietloff Pass. Let's start from inside the tent, okay? Do you remember how I said there were three slashes in the tent? That's what made everyone want to point to external armed robbery, and it's why Yuri believes to this day that it was armed men. Problem is, the slashes are from inside the tent. They were trying to escape from something, right? Correct in the tent. So if that's yeah, the case, I was going to say, because you'd mentioned earlier that they came from the inside, so it wouldn't be anybody attacking them. Exactly. So if that's the case, we know for a fact that they were trying to get out of the tent. Now, I forgot to mention this earlier. So one of the thing that's happened with infrasonic sound, we were able to detect a nuclear test in Korea in 2009 using an infrasonic meter. So it has non-weapon, non-weapons uses, but There's also so many terrible side effects. I found one thing I was looking for right here. Um, So in 2003 was when the British tested that infrasonic emitter. In 2003, London researchers looking into the symptoms of infrasonic wave exposure hit an infrasonic cannon at the back of a concert hall in South London with an audience of 750 people and asked them to sit through similar contemporary pieces of music while unbeknownst to them, two of the pieces included waves generated by the infrasonic device. They were asked for the reactions to each piece of music. 165 people, 22%, confessed to bodily chills, strange feelings of uneasiness, sorrow, nervousness, revulsion, and fear during the infrasonic portions. Some of the 22% also reported accelerated heartbeats, sudden memory of emotional loss, or rather, or sudden memories of emotional loss. Though the effects uh, experienced by these concert goers were milder on the end of the spectrum, the idea of infrasound was a hidden silent instrument. So it's like, it's it's got real psychological effects going with it based on a sound. There's also something called the Windsor hum that has been, it's, it's one on the border of Canada. 
it's near Lord Hur or well, Lord Huron, near Lake Huron, um, and kind of close to Detroit. So that is, you know, like I said, it it occurs naturally. There's the so the Israeli military vehicle I mentioned earlier that was in 2006. These are this isn't old stuff. This is being tested today. So it was 2006 when the Israeli military vehicle was using it, and infrasound was being developed by the Germans to stir up anger. It was used during speeches to make them angrier when Hitler was on stage. Interesting. Yeah, this is a really scary thing. And it was also used on prisoners. It was used as a torture method, of course. Um, mm -hmm. The reason I bring this up is that it is one of two things that definitively killed the people at Dyatlov Pass. Infrasound was used to kill these people. There was a second half to the coin, though, and it is an less interesting, more boring sounding, but definitely worth looking at. And it's something called the Carmen Vortex Street, which I feel like is such a weird name. Yes, name it a street. Um, but in the aerodynamics of weather phenomenon, air vortices or small tornadoes are created when wind of a certain speed hits a blunt object of a particular size and shape. So. For instance, uh, he says in here, and once again, this is all from the book Dead Mountain, the untold story of the Dietlov Pass. Um, excellent book. I will plug it a few more times just to make sure that credit is given where credit's due because I've read directly from it several times here. Um, you guys know what the Rock of Gibraltar is? I feel like I've heard of it, but I don't know exactly what it is. It's a rock that is infamous... Um, in the straight, it's, I think it's in Gibraltar. Yeah, it's in Gibraltar. Duh. It's infamous for sinking ships. And there's a theory and a well-spoken theory that um, the reason for that is that the way that the rock deflects wind and the way that the wind traffic travels through there creates this effect, the Carmen Vortex Street effect, where you have essentially micro tornadoes traveling off the outside and thus slamming the ship around because you have these weird vortices that only exist temporarily, but they still have enough force to generate, you know, I, I can't even remember. I think it said like 74 to 100 plus mile an hour winds just briefly enough to swing you around. So this is the other half of what killed these hikers. And I'll explain why. So the noise that is produced by the Carmen Vortex is equated to the sound of a freight train passing by. It's a really eerie sound to hear if you're out in the middle of the woods at night, right? Yeah, um, absolutely. So. There's a rock, very not very close, about a mile from where the Dietlov Pass uh, incident occurred. It's called Boot Rock, and it was used as a marker. The theory was initially put forward by this author that Boot Rock had created this effect. Um, it had created a Carmen Vortex, and that had been why they were found so far apart, and you know all these different things had occurred. Problem was, it's not close enough. However... Upon further inspection, the scientists at the NOAA discovered something. The top of Dead Mountain is dome-shaped. It's a very smooth dome. That dome is the right shape to create this exact effect, the Carmen Vortex. Hmm. And it was the correct way, or it was, it was angled in such a way that exactly where they camped was the worst possible place to be. And then you add into the oh. effect that in that area... <laughs> There is infrasonic activity, and it happens when the wind blows over a certain part of that dome. There's a reason nothing grows there. So the author of this book does a favor to us all. He actually recreates as if he were there at the very end of the book from start to finish what happened. 
I don't want to read it verbatim because I just feel like that's plagiarizing. But I'll give you kind of my two cents version of it because it's really spooky. I also did want to mention one thing. Um, there, this part I will read. This is super spooky. Um, I remembered how each of the search volunteers in 1959 had described the hikers' abandonment of their tent as the behavior of lunatics. Didn't the effects of infrasound produce that same brand of lunacy during the war? Yeah, absolutely. <clears throat> yeah. So he that's and that's a direct quote. And then he says during or in the northern Ural Mountains, even in the summer, there can be strong winds and sometimes even whirlwinds. This is a reference to the Carmen Vortex during the whirlwinds. Various sounds arise, terrifying and foreign, like the howls of animals or human moans. You get scared mm-hmm. when you're there. And there are those who <laughs> haven't heard anything like it and become frightened. So this is what he hypothesizes happens. And I, for one, agree. I think that this is kind of the definitive. This is this is what I have found to be accurate. They're all in their tent. They're enjoying some time, some downtime. The tent itself took a little while to put up. And the stove they had had a record speed of being set up in just over an hour. It's not an easy stove to haul or to use. The stove was not completely set up when it was found by the searchers. As they're all sprawled out, relaxing, a feeling of uneasiness overwhelms all of them almost simultaneously. They feel watched. They feel like they need to get out. They feel afraid. Suddenly their frontal lobe is taken over by an absolute flight or fight, and they all flee. One of them, who can't make it to the tent flap quick enough, slashes at the sidewall until he finds a hole big enough to make himself get through. They all sprint out into the dark, becoming completely disoriented. One of them drops a flashlight. The other keeps hauling it. The one who drops the flashlight is Sasha. Over the course of the next 15 minutes, all of them will die. Now, I mentioned that two of them died of blunt force trauma. There's a pretty easy solution to that one. On one side, you had a downhill slope. Three of them ended up there. On the other side, you had a precipice, and two of them took a headlong dive right into that precipice, landing on rocks at the bottom, which which crushed skulls and created impact damage. okay and there's also one final piece of the puzzle one of them was found wearing two watches suggesting that he had murdered the rest of them in a fit of rage stolen the goods and left however he was also not wearing anything near the equipment he should have so he didn't steal anything and light out the truth of the story is he was wearing two watches lest one not go off and they missed their time because wind up technology was not that great There's also the very cheesy theory that there was some kind of love triangle there. Not so. They were an asexual group. And while one of them did have feelings for Xena, he kept it to himself. They were nothing but friends. These people were killed through a crazy scientific phenomena. Picture going outside. So they already feel completely insane. They go outside and there are tornadoes of snow flying around everywhere. You're completely disoriented. You stumble your way around. And when you finally come to your senses after getting out of the infrasonic effect and essentially wake up, you're standing in the dark with no moon out wind howling around you in negative 25 degrees with no shoes on and no idea where your tent is. And you are going to die. And that is how they felt in their last minutes. Okay, but I have one question. You said one of them had their tongue cut out. Yep. That one actually was a big question mark for me until it became very obvious once somebody brought it up. Woodland creatures and scavenging animals go for the soft tissues first. They go for your eyes and your tongue. 
Not to mention so, the fact that, yeah, go ahead. Well, wouldn't they be able to tell that it was cut and not nibbled off? Yeah, maybe that's I the thought, thing. Because I was thinking maybe she bit it like in which fear has been or theorized down as bit well. It. Yeah, the problem is that the tongue <clears throat> would was be pretty evenly tell. gone, but it wasn't. There, there's no report that says it was a direct knife cut. It just said her tongue was missing. So they don't they didn't report it at all that it could have been bitten off because she could have bitten it off herself out of fear. 100 percent. Yeah. She, or out of the fall. You know, yeah. it was she, and she was one of the ones that died from hypothermia, right? Yeah, she was. So, yeah. And see, she could have in during the hypothermia while she was getting cold. She could have just. Yeah. Or, or even she tongue. was she was in the group that took the leap off the cliff. So it's possible she also bit her tongue off in the process. So, yeah, that's that's the long and sordid story of it. Essentially. They were God's least favorite. That was basically what it boiled down to. <laughs> and unfortunately, that's how it ended. Yuri still lives with an immense amount of guilt, but is convinced that they were killed by somebody with a gun. I think that science killed them. I think that they happened to be in the center of the pentagram that was that part of the, the northern northern Siberia. And that's kind of the long and short of it. And I don't say that in any disrespect to anybody involved. As I read this story, I felt way closer to all these people, and I feel like I know them. And I would really, really suggest that our listeners read this book. I'm going to get the name of the author real quick because he deserves it. Um, okay. And I, I, while you're looking that up, so I'm going to, I will agree with you that I think it was just some, some type of freak of nature that it just, all, everything lined up right at the perfect timing. Um, because every time you were talking about the sound, I just kept thinking about the sound that has been recorded in the ocean. Have you heard of this? Uh, this there's been like a loud, it just sounds like it almost, it almost sounds like a clap. Yeah. In the I know ocean. What you're talking about. And it, and it was recorded in the Pacific and the Atlantic at the same time. This sound, it's super, super quiet. Um, yeah, but, I got picked like, up by if, Sosis. Yes. Um, and they're trying to figure out where it came from. They still to this day don't know what where it came from, but it was heard by like thousands of, mi- of miles away from each other. They, it's it was it's hypothesized up. as well that that was a, a nuclear test by another country illicitly, which would make sense. But it, it would. But it I is, also thought it could have been something like tectonic plates moving in the ocean that could have oh just yeah. shifted. There, there's a lot of a lot of pieces there. But yeah, no. So the, the interesting part about this is that you could be living with infrasonic sound right now. Like, yeah, it, it's produced by everything from ceiling fans to the planet itself. And there's something really yeah. eerie to me about the fact that the planet can produce a sound that can drive people to complete madness. The planet can produce a sound that creates psychological scarring. That's pretty scary stuff. So when the earth is out to get you, like it is for all of us right now, just remember, uh, remember Dietlov Pass and remember you haven't quite attained infrasonic sound with micro hurricanes of snow flying around the sides of your head. So it could be worse. <laughs> yes, but also if there's sound that can do that, do you think there's sound that could make you smarter? No, you're without hope, Kyle. Keep dreaming. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to write a whole uh, book about it. <laughs> but uh, once about again, the once again, Paranormies, uh, please read Donnie Eicher's book. That's D-O-N-N-I-E-E-I-C-H-A-R. I really appreciate the work he did. Uh, he did an absolutely wonderful job at kind of portraying the reality of the situation. The book is Dead Mountain, The Untold True Story of Dietlov Pass. Um, I had a great time researching this one, and I hope you enjoyed the episode. 
moral of the story, don't get the earth mad. It's going to kill you. <laughs> but this has been Paranormal Guys. I've been Zane. And I'm Kyle. And remember, don't go camping in negative degree weather. <laughs> it's Dead Mountain. It's not the Mountain of Death. Not the Dead Mountain. To keep up to date on what's happening on the podcast, follow us on Instagram at guysparanormal. Also, if you have any stories you want to share with us, email us at pnormalguys at gmail.com.